District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Happy 2-22-2022, everyone. Hope this episode finds you well. For those of you just tuning to the podcast, I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I am a media strategist, outdoor writer of the award-winning variety, conservationist, hunter, angler, gun owner, check off all the boxes. So I think I'm somewhat qualified to speak on these issues relating to energy, conservation, wildlife, and the sort. And I'm just also a curious mind. I like to look for different hooks, underreported stories, and that is the crux of this podcast's existence. Before I dive deep into today's episode, we're going to talk about how energy security relates to national security in that connection and what the United States can do to restore energy independence in wake of what is transpiring in Eastern Europe. I'm going to talk about a speaking tour I'll be embarking on starting next week and how you can participate either in person or ideally virtually because most of these events that I'll talk about are largely geared towards students, but I do have some events that are open to the wider public that I hope you will check out. And another announcement I found out recently of a summer speaking engagement, so I will go into that in addition to this discussion about energy independence and the need to have it to prevent wide-scale conflicts like what we're seeing in Eastern Europe. Moreover, we had a very great week of listenership. Thank you to everyone who tuned into the podcast about Sue and Settle. That topic is not going to go away anytime soon, and we will know more about the details of the settlement, potential settlement, after April 8th and whether or not the Biden administration betrayed hunters and anglers in settling with the Center for Biological Diversity to cut back access to hunting and fishing on newly opened national wildlife refuges that fall under the purview of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And thank you to everyone who's left reviews. Please continue to do so and let us know what you think of the podcast and send people our way. That's the best way that we can grow and reach more people. My spring 2022 speaking tour sounds like this and is going to look largely like this. So I'm going to be going to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina on March 3rd. That is next Thursday, speaking around 6 p.m. I am still awaiting the classroom details where you can attend in person, but I also promise to deliver a virtual transmission, I think through YouTube or a similar online channel, digital platform. But YouTube has been a really good go-to source for me broadcasting my speeches and lectures virtually for those unable to attend. So we're gonna start off in Appalachian State in next door, North Carolina. Very excited for that. That came really last minute, but it's on my conservation is conservative lecture. And I'm gonna be talking about that the following week in Florida State University. Again, I'm gonna actually speak to their conservative group there on this subject. So I figured why not stack more speaking engagements on this subject? Cause I'm already talking about it. I like to travel. I'm getting the travel bug itching to go and speak to more audiences. So get to do that. So we have Appalachian state, Florida state university. Again, that will be March 10th at 7 PM Eastern awaiting the final classroom details. But like I said, we'll also be virtually broadcasted. I will have a few weeks off of travel to focus on client work, of course. And then I'm going to hit the road again in April. So I'm going to be speaking at a Students for Liberty CFACT Ohio State University event, rather a conference, all-day conference on April 9th in the Columbus, Ohio area, where we're going to talk about the Second Amendment. I'm going to deliver a similar talk I gave at Florida State University's Yale chapter 
about what gun rights look like in 2022. So that's going to be fun. So it's not directly campus related, but it is a interesting event. Like I said, it's going to be outside of Columbus and I will share those details as the date approaches. Then a little bit later, I'm going to be going to George Mason University locally, and I will talk again about, actually, I'm going to depart a little bit from conservation is conservative, although a lot of people really like that lecture, but we're going to talk about how free enterprise conserves the environment best, especially in wake of the challenges we're seeing globally, especially with the changes from one administration to another, why free market environmentalism is viable, despite a lot of criticism wielded towards it. And I'm going to make it a really interactive lecture. I found some interesting clips. I love to incorporate a lot of interesting data into my lectures and make it fun. But this speech I'm going to give at GMU is going to be very interactive. Again, it'll also be virtually broadcasted, but I'm going to be speaking close to home. So that's really exciting. And then following, and that is uh, April 20th. And then following that speech, I will be going to Lincoln, Nebraska the next day to speak at this upcoming inaugural Stop 3030 30 by 30 Summit that is hosted by American Stewards for Liberty. And CFACT, which sponsors this podcast, will be one of the key organizers alongside American Stewards for Liberty. And we had Margaret Beifeld on the podcast previously. A lot of you were really intrigued by her comments and her research into this issue. And this is something that I had forewarned in 2021, the end of it, about this issue rising and why it should concern sportsmen and women, especially from the land use perspective, especially since it's built under the guise of this is going to advance public access. There's only a small percentage of lands and waters that are properly conserved. Although the data from the federal government itself about federally protected lands shows actually the opposite is true, that the 30% threshold is actually already met. And this is under the geological service numbers of already federally protected lands that are free of any activity for multiple uses. So that number accurately is actually 40.6%. But the media and a lot of the environmental writers and reporters are just dictating what the Biden administration is doing. They're not asking questions, assessing what wide-sweeping concerns would arise from this. And so I'm going to talk about the media angle, I think how participants at the conference can get engaged in public media, in private media, in newsletter writing. I have to see what my speech will entail, but I'll be delivering some brief remarks about how to effectively tackle this issue from a media lens. Also keep it facts-based, obviously not have anything be steeped in conspiracy, but this is a really big concern and a lot of governors across the United States have jumped on to oppose 3030. So it'll be my first time in Lincoln, Nebraska. That'll be April 22nd, if I'm not mistaken, that is Earth Day. So we'll have that. And then I will talk more about some summer speeches that I'm going to be having very soon. But I just learned, if I'm not mistaken, I will be speaking at Freedom Fest. I don't know if I'm going to be speaking about conservation or freelancing, maybe a combination of the two in my story, if I'm going to focus more so on labor issues. But I will be speaking at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas this July. Super excited by that. And I should be having some more speaking engagements and hopefully some more media appearances as I start to take on this new role with Young Voices, especially as a regional leader in their program. So I start my duties March 1st and those run through December 31st. So hopefully I will have more speaking engagements with respect to that, but I do have some great speaking gigs lined up. I will include everything in the show notes for you to tune in. And if you're in the area and you're interested, please come by those different campuses, those different events, 
and let's have a discussion. I think this is a really timely subject and I'm grateful to, again, Leadership Institute for sending this my way in concert with Young Voices and also CFACT for sending some opportunities, especially two that I listed my way as well to help them. I work closely with them. So this is great to, to work on their behalf as well at these different events in Ohio and then also Lincoln, Nebraska. So that's kind of where my speaking engagements this spring are going to be spread out. So I hope you tune in and I hope you can attend or at least share the word to your friends in those areas. Let's talk briefly about energy independence, about energy security, vulnerabilities, things of that sort. And independent of conservation, I am very concerned about what's happening in Ukraine and Russian reigniting of aggressive tendencies and takeover of land. I'm not Ukrainian personally, but I'm Lithuanian, which is almost geographically kind of next door. And Lithuania had struggled like Ukraine for independence for a long time. And unfortunately, a lot of these countries are very reliant. Even Lithuania, my ancestral homeland, is very reliant on Russia, despite being part of the European Union. They're wholly dependent on Russia for natural gas and oil and gas in general. Germany, if you guys don't know, separate from Eastern Europe, they have their own problems, but it was announced today that they have put a block on Nord Stream 2. It's little too late to do that. But Nord Stream 2 is this really questionable pipeline that President Biden really ignored, really dismissed after he was inaugurated into office. And now they're saying after tensions mount, after invasion talks are being discussed, that, oh boy, now it's so bad, we'll offer limited sanctions. But how does this relate to energy and conservation here? Here's what I'm trying to get across. The United States, if you guys don't know, is actually dependent on Russia now. I think we're the third largest net importer of oil and gas from Russia, that's ludicrous. At the tail end of the Trump administration, we were net exporters of energy, of liquid natural gas, which was called molecules of freedom. And a lot of people in media had mocked the term from former energy secretary, Rick Perry. But it truly was, in essence, molecules of freedom because we were exporting this to countries and cutting their reliance on adversaries like Russia. And so what actions were taken to make the United States really weak when it comes to energy security? I'm going to read for you briefly what those steps were, what actions the Biden administration took and offer some quick, I would say, remedies. I'll counter the policies with remedies about what they should pursue. I don't think they'll listen. I'm not influential enough to really have their ear, all things considered. But I think in terms of a broader discussion about energy this is what really needs to be discussed, especially because there are vulnerabilities with a lot of this push towards renewables, clean energy, without accounting for the fact that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. The United States is no longer energy independent. Within a year of the Biden administration coming into office, we see this tension breakout, this ridiculous neo-Soviet quest by Vladimir Putin, who, if you guys don't already know this, Russia loves it when environmentalists in the United States call for banning fracking, call for banning LNG pipelines, because it bolsters Russia. It bolsters their standing in energy markets. Pretty, not coincidental. It's pretty intentional, if you ask me. But these are the steps that the Biden administration took that have led to our weakened position as an energy leader. And it really should concern you. 
the first thing that the Biden administration would be wise to do would be to repeal one of their very first executive actions that they took when Biden first came to office on January 20th. And I'm referring to pertaining to the executive order on protecting public health and the environment and restoring science to tackle the climate crisis. And I think it's 13990. And what they did in this executive order, they said they wanted an immediate review and anything that was passed during the Trump administration, whether it was cutting regulation, increasing oil and gas exploration on federal lands, everything that was good, arguably good under the Trump administration, they called for the review of it and revoking of it. Pretty self-explanatory. And I'm reading through the whitehouse.gov brief on this. And this is basically their climate agenda in executive action format and no drilling in Anwar essentially killing the Keystone Pipeline, making everything focused on this centrally planned top-down climate agenda first with no accounting for diminishment of fossil fuels, which the country and the world still relies upon. I think the United States is like 80% dependent on fossil fuels. That's a pretty big number. So it's really hard to force transition as well. And there was a review I had alluded to earlier about the Interior Department on November 26, 2021. The department found shortcomings in oil and gas leasing programs. And I made the connection to similar echoing by the Obama Interior Department that said the same thing about coal exploration on federal leases. And it seems very, very similar. They say that it's an archaic model. And you can go back to the episode where I discussed this, find that in show notes. But they have been undermining oil and gas development, safe oil and gas development, arguably speaking, in the United States. And all their actions point to that as well. But everything that we see now, the bad policies, the rising of gas prices, the dependence on Russia, dependence on foreign adversaries stems from this executive order overall, certainly speaking. My second point would be for them to stop this concerted effort to push towards 100% decarbonization, 100% so-called renewables, because the United States, not every state can adopt a clean energy agenda, nor do they want to, so to speak, because they see shortcomings with solar and wind. Because of the baseload. Uh, you can't have solar if there's no sun. You can't have wind if there's no wind. And kind of just this refusal, the skirting of not allowing for nuclear, which is the true 100% emissions-free clean energy source. There's still a skepticism about it. You don't really see many environmentalists liking that. But if you do want to pursue a clean energy agenda, you can't have this fear of nuclear, which is proven to be very, very sustainable. And you'll see a lot of people who support oil and gas admit and and concede that nuclear is a viable, viable energy source. And it should be explored. Same with natural gas. Natural gas has allowed us to become energy independent. That's, like I said, the LNG exports under the Trump administration led to us being energy independent, a net exporter for the first time in a long time, if not the first time ever. And this 100% renewable push, again, look to Germany, look to countries where they've done this and they've had to go back to coal. If we were to make that mistake to follow in Germany's footsteps, that would have huge problems. We saw shortcomings again in Texas last year, uh, whenever blackouts and brownouts occur, again, people fault the 100% push to renewables. And if you want to look even beyond the inefficiencies, let's talk about the land use. As a conservationist, to install a wind turbine on every piece of acre 
or a solar field on a large swath of land, do people even account for what the destructive potential that could be? And I think I can agree with some species conservationists who are definitely opposed to hunting, definitely disagree with me on my all-of-the-above energy stance. But we can even look to species conservationists in Nevada and California who are saying, whoa, these are big-scale projects. What is going to be their impact on rare tortoises, on other endangered or threatened species that rely on these spaces to thrive? And I think we can express concerns there. You look at offshore wind turbines, a question I wish more sportsmen and women asked. What is the impact on fish migration patterns? Offshore wind is known and has been studied and is is seen to interrupt fish migration patterns and have other interruptions on the landscape. Makes people less inclined to tour coastal regions. And we're going to see more information on that start to come out as well. So again, this 100% push towards renewables, decarbonization, it's impractical, and also is going to raise a lot of doubts upon how actually sustainable they are in terms of land use. And we start to see that battle here in Virginia over debate of repealing the Virginia Clean Economy Act. We do see an appetite from the new administration, the Yunkin administration, to do away with it. Unfortunately, it didn't pass through the General Assembly because it requires undoing it since it was codified into law last year under the former Northam administration. But we see states perhaps having buyer's remorse about going 100% carbon-free, so to speak. And that will certainly play out, especially as energy prices skyrocket. People don't see the net benefit to this. And I think privately, if you encourage people to adopt solar and wind, that is great. But government getting in bed with that gives them an outsized influence and also just is not reflective of the individual needs of different states and localities. You can't put a one-size-fits-all energy approach. And I think it would be ill-advised for them to continue. So maybe the Biden administration will scale back on this 100% decarbonization effort because it, it's not going to be met and it's going to lead to higher costs. And the third thing I want to point out, a remedy, kind of goes back to Executive Order 13990. If the Biden administration were wise and do not want to see the American people suffer with higher costs and also a net, no net benefit to the environment, why do we have to sacrifice commerce for the sake of the environment? Ultimately, nature and people lose when preservationist policies are at the forefront. We're seeing the consequences of preservationist environmental policies play out, and it's hurting us. Morally speaking, it's hurting us financially, and it'll have no real impact on conserving the environment. And I think going back to, like I said, point one, restoring a lot of the Trump-era energy policies. And under that review they had of the four years of Trump administration under Executive Order 13990, They had repealed a lot of what was instituted under Trump's interior, and I have no doubt the EPA has revoked a lot of rules, changes as well, and similarly with Energy Department. And so look to what policies were working that led to the United States becoming a net importer of LNG for the first time ever. And can you assess whether or not those policies really were destructive as a lot of these radical environmentalists say they were? I haven't seen any proof of that because... You can have, again, a balance between allowing this country to flourish and also protecting the environment. Doesn't mean everything has to be developed. I'm totally against putting a Walmart in every single corner. I think that's ugly. It makes no sense. Anyone calling for that, thankfully, is in the minority. No one wants to develop everything wholesale. But you need to allow for multiple uses on federal lands. And we're seeing a move away from that. They want 
I remember talking about this on the podcast of quite a bit of time ago that they claim they want multiple use. This new BLM director wants to still maintain multiple use, but we see people in Aspen Institute and far left think tanks and preservationist think tanks that want to move away from multiple use altogether. But you see the BLM director, Bureau of Land Management director say, well, we still want multiple uses and we still respect stakeholders, but we want to have clean energy. Let's see how good that's going to go to, to move away from it. And we're already, like I said, we're already starting to see the impact of when you move away from oil and gas and new exploration of leases. And also something I want to talk about too, as well, you can't achieve a clean energy agenda as the Biden administration wants to do. If you're not allowing for domestic mining of critical mine sources, the refusal to allow the twin metal mines. I know that's super controversial. And some of my friends listening are probably thinking, Gabriella, what's wrong with you? Why are you supporting it? It would have been terrible on the boundary waters region. And I know that's debatable, but I've seen proof that the impact would have been minimal. I was against Bristol Bay being developed and I still stand by that position because that's one of the last pristine salmon sources. So I was fine with no mine being there, but after a time, we have to ask ourselves, how is the United States going to lead on clean energy with EV production, with these new technologies, if they refuse to critically mine and source and process here in the United States? You can't do that. You can't say one thing and then have policies that undercut and discourage it altogether. And actually, let's talk about a fourth or fifth policy, something I want to, that kind of tied in with the executive order as well. So the Wall Street Journal had discussed that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission last Thursday revised its policy for approving natural gas pipelines and export terminals. According to the Wall Street Journal, FERC by law must vouch that products are in the public interest and won't have a significant environmental impact. But now the agency plans to include greenhouse gas emissions in this analysis. The vote was three to two with two Republican commissioners dissenting. They say this is the kicker. The pipeline analysis may include emissions from upstream production and downstream consumption, even though there's no reliable way to measure either one. You can bet that regulators beholden to climate activists will assert that every new pipeline will massively increase emissions, even though more pipelines are needed to transport natural gas back to back up unreliable renewables, especially as nuclear and coal plants shut down won't matter if the piped gas is replacing dirtier coal or helping keep the lights on. Now, it, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline being canceled, actually the, the funders behind that pulling out because they were worried that the administration would be hostile, and they're not wrong. They are very hostile. The Mountain Valley Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, which was canceled on day one of the Biden administration, which was supposed to be a 100% renewable pipeline that had very low emissions, and that project was canceled, displaced a lot of people from the workforce, and really hurt Biden's key constituency, union workers, union energy workers. I think they have a lot of buyer's remorse now, too, because you can't count on unions or your so-called union president to do anything for you. And so with FERC issuing this decision to block any future natural gas pipeline, that also is going to add to the problems I've been discussing in this podcast today. So... The Biden administration can say, look, we jumped the gun. We didn't realize the extent that our policies had, but seeing where, where they've stood on different issues, they never admit wrong. They always blame Republicans. They blame detractors. They blame critics for the problems that they've caused. And especially in this energy sector too, energy space as well. 
Their policies are undercutting energy independence. I read for you the proof of that. This is not Republican propaganda. These are legit sources. There are ways for these issues to resolve so we don't have to go to war. So we don't see Ukraine be compromised and destroyed under the ambitions of this Kremlin hack. And I can say that with full confidence since I'm Lithuanian. Um, And also, I think Europe hopefully has a wake-up call to not do business with Russia with respect to energy. If United States ever becomes energy independent again, hopefully they'll buy gas and oil from us. No way they should be going into the arms of Vladimir Putin to do this. It's nonsensical. Why does the European Union exist to buy oil and gas from Russia? That completely undermines the very crux of their existence, the very essence of why they exist. And I will discuss more about this. But tomorrow, I had talked about this last week. I will actually now have a Virginia crossover analysis episode to discuss what is happening with different bills in the Virginia legislature, if any hunting, fishing, conservation legislation moved, or if bad legislation died. There's some good news on that front. And then we'll also talk about the status of Andrew Wheeler's appointment to run the Department of Natural Resources here in Virginia. And unfortunately, it doesn't look optimistic there, I'm sad to say. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're following the podcast on your preferred player. We recommend Apple because that's where the largest share of our listenership hails from. You can also find us on Spotify and dozens of other platforms. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And please, please, please go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify. Those help us go a long way in seeing how far we can go and measure our progress. So we really appreciate that. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the word with your friends. Share links to individual episodes and to the podcast. Want to appear on the podcast? Have an interesting story to tell? I'm all ears. Shoot me a message and we'll do our best to process your request.